Episode number nine. Is your house in order? Today we're talking about the disorderly house accusation that applies to liquor licensees in California. This is the Crime School Radio Show, where industry experts discuss the business of fighting crime and prevention strategies for making places safe. Leading today's discussion is security expert Chris McGoey. Welcome to Crime School. Today we're talking about those establishments that sell alcoholic beverages, either by the package or by the drink. And we're talking about those that have liquor licenses in the United States. And we're talking mostly about California, but these ideas apply almost anywhere. Now, I had to learn very fast many years ago in a former life when I was running the security program for 7-Eleven food stores that we needed to step up and address frequent violations imposed by the State of California Alcoholic Beverage Control Board. I was reminded very quickly that even though we bought and paid for these liquor licenses or beer and wine licenses in most cases, that it was a privilege not a right to have that license or to maintain that license. And we had to comply with the rules and regulations and be a good neighbor. Now, in many cases, I was reminded that these small little 7-Eleven stores were a nuisance. They were a bad neighbor. They had noise, loud music, loitering, littering, vandalism. People were using it like a toilet, urinating, defecating in some cases marking graffiti around the, uh, the neighborhood. Drunks would hang out, uh, loiter. Sometimes there's fights, assaults, robberies, even cases of prostitution, drug dealing. Yeah, that definitely meets all the criteria for being a nuisance, doesn't it? So rightly so, the state would clamp down on those little stores and others like it. Now, uh, there's other businesses all, all the way from the smallest markets up to the largest entertainment venues like a ballpark or arena. They have similar or far worse problems. In between, you have active nightclubs, you have bars, you have gas stations, you have liquor stores, you have restaurants of various size and types. You might have dance clubs. It kind of goes on and on. So I had to make it my business to find out what exactly we could do to get our arms around this problem on a large scale so we don't keep making the same mistakes and having the same issues with licensing over and over. So I made it my business to come to know and meet the district administrators and investigators with the State Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control. And over time, I did create a partnership with these various investigators. And one of them is today's special guest, actually, by the name of Lauren Tyson. Uh, Back in the day, she was uh, working with the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control and her counterparts. And I learned very quickly, what could I do to be a better partner to let this agency know that we're serious about complying with the regulations and the rules? And let's work together so we don't have these ongoing problems. And that's what we did. Once we found out what exactly we needed to do, we did it. It got to the point when there was a problem or a complaint made about a 7-Eleven store somewhere in California. District investigator would call me. They would call me personally 
and say, hey, Chris, get out there and fix this problem that we have. And I did. And I would communicate back with them exactly what my investigation found, what we'd done about it. And we promised to sin no more going forward. And and that was a, a relationship that, that worked very well uh, during my tenure. And it's sort of the basis of the subject matter of what we're talking about today. When your business gets really deep in the weeds, you simply thumb your nose at the rules and the regulations. You have ongoing problems. You don't seem to be doing anything about it. The police are sick and tired of you, of responding to your business. The neighbors are more than disgusted with having you as a neighbor. They start complaining. Now, when they complain to the police in the form of an incident report, guess what? Those get passed on to the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control. Some will call or write directly to the department and make complaints. And when that happens, you start getting those nasty letters in the mail saying that we've received these complaints and you need to come down to our office and what say you about these allegations? One of the worst letters you can get is the disorderly house accusation made by the district administrator. Basically is saying, come into our office and tell us why we should not fine you why we should not suspend your license, why should we not put additional restrictions on your license, or why shouldn't we take your license away in the form of permanent revocation. So at that stage, it is extremely serious because it could mean the undoing of the business if that license is taken away. So our special guest today is the expert about this subject matter, she is the founder and CEO of the Liquor License Advisor based out of Riverside, California. She is really the ultimate expert on all these issues because she was there for 29 years. She developed a lot of the policies and procedures, was involved in many of the hearings and disciplinary actions over the years. So there's no one better that knows how to avoid these issues in the first place and how to navigate this maze of regulations and come out on the other side with your license still intact. Now, when she worked for the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control, she was an undercover enforcement officer. She had peace officer powers, meaning she had a badge, she carried a gun, and she could really lay the hammer down. She could do on-the-spot enforcement if necessary, including shutting you down. She did undercover assignments, but then she also managed the state liquor licensee education program called LEAD, L-E-A-D, and that stands for the Licensee Education on Alcohol and Drugs. It's what's commonly called a alcohol server training program or responsible service of alcohol training program. Lauren now consults with licensed establishments on how to prevent and how to manage alcohol-related issues, either before or after an incident. And she is a standard of care expert witness in civil litigation where licensed establishments are sued about liquor liability. Lauren is developing an online alcohol server training course that I'm really excited about. We desperately need that. Currently, licensed establishments must send their staff down to some other location to sit and listen to a speaker for hours. Having something online would allow the employee to stay on site. Lauren is also writing a book with a co-author about liquor liability issues. 
So without further ado, let's get Lauren Tyson on the line and let her tell you firsthand what a disorderly house accusation in California means to a liquor licensee and how they might avoid it. This is the Crime School Radio Show. After a short break, we will introduce today's special guest. Welcome back from the break. Lauren Tyson has joined us on the line. Lauren, please tell our listeners what exactly is a disorderly house accusation in California? Well, disorderly house is a term uh, that's actually in the statute, in the law itself, and that's uh, in California, Section 25601 of the Business and Professions Code. And basically, a disorderly house is a place that's out of control, a licensed establishment that has just uh, so many things going on that it's, it's a real problem for public health, safety, and the community. And it's, it's illegal to run a disorderly house. And it can be either an off-sale outlet, you know, like a liquor store or a market, convenience store, or it could be a restaurant or bar. And it either, there's two different uh, aspects to a disorderly house. It either disturbs neighbors with noise, loud music, uh, loitering, vandalism, people using uh, the establishment for to relieve themselves after a bout of drinking. Big complaint. They use a the neighborhood as a toilet. Exactly. Uh, graffiti, that type of thing. So it's it's kind of a neighborhood disturbance. And then the other aspect, uh, it could be and or ongoing crimes such as uh, fights, assaults, uh, prostitution, narcotics, and drunks, uh, intoxicated people. And what about traffic? Traffic, I would say traffic, yeah, fits into the neighborhood aspect, disturbance. Well, in my world, that's one of the, that's really in the top 10 list. Uh, when you have drunk people coming out of a bar, now it'd be nice if they trickled out one at a time, but the bars close in California at what time? Uh, 2 a.m. is the legal time. So starting about 1.45 to 2.15, you have a mass exodus from many clubs. And if the club holds 1,000 people, you potentially have, I don't know what percentage of that 1,000 people are going to be over the limit or intoxicated, heading out to their cars and get, getting on the highways. That's right. So I don't know if that fits the classic definition of a disorderly house, but that's high on the list of many law enforcement agencies of, of the problems that they have. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the key with the disorderly house is that it's uh, an ongoing problem. It's not just, you know, one night. It's just uh, continuous um, violations of law. So how does that come to the attention of the state uh, liquor licensing agency to apply that label? It, it kind of uh, happens over time, and it will come to the, to the attention either through a neighborhood complaint uh, you know, a citizen complaint, or perhaps local law enforcement will complain, or yeah, you know, contact ABC. Uh, ABC maybe may start receiving reports uh, from local law enforcement about all these crimes that are occurring. And ABC, this is a California agency, Alcoholic Beverage Control. Correct. In a different state or different province, like Canada, it would be called something else. But right. The same function. So going back to my world, uh, something like a homicide, that would be a red flag. 
That'd be a real uh, red flag. And, um, you know, depending on where the homicide happened and who was involved, you know, it may or may not go against the license. I can remember when I was working in the Inglewood ABC office as an enforcement supervisor. I was a brand new uh, enforcement supervisor, and it was quite a, a, an awakening to suddenly be put in this area where it was a you know, high-crime area of Los Angeles that I worked and was responsible for. Some of the things were just shocking that were happening. We got this one police report where there was a murder, uh, a homicide inside the establishment of a female who was there to solicit drinks from male patrons. And she was murdered, and, you know, whoever killed her just drug her body, you know, outside, propped her up against the outside wall of the establishment. And so, to me, this was like the ultimate. And then, then they kept on partying. I mean, so you have, you know, this blood trail all the way out, and this woman parked dead outside. Well, you've heard the old saying in the bar industry, take it outside if there's a fight. Take it outside. Literally, they did that, yeah. And they believe that. There are people who believe that as long as it doesn't happen, the body doesn't fall inside my establishment, I'm good to go. So when they have a fight, rather than dealing with it totally inside and out, they literally will ask them to take it outside or push the people outside and let them duke it out. Right. They're responsible for the, for the parking lot, though, and that's something a lot of them don't realize, uh, the owners. Some of the confusion is that the bar or club operators don't own the parking lot. They just lease the, uh, you know, they lease the club. They're paying rent, but they're not the landlord. And it's unclear to them that they're responsible for the parking lot or the public sidewalk out front. Right. Well, they they need to know that uh, they are responsible for, you know, that portion that's reasonably used for their own patrons. Uh, if they're in a shopping center, then sure, they're not, you know, responsible for the far end of the shopping center, but a reasonable area that their patrons might park in. So if it's, at a, if it's a parking lot adjacent to their establishment and the majority of their customers park there, they can't just turn a blind eye to it. The, exactly. They're responsible. And the sidewalk out front where the patrons line up to enter the club, even though it's a public sidewalk. Yes. They're responsible for up to 20 feet from the, uh, from the building. So Okay. And other states may vary. They may have different regulations on that. That's correct. But certainly in California... Uh, the licensee is responsible for it. So so the ABC will get reports funneled to them from the different agencies throughout the year, right, for incidents of violence, homicides, certainly, robberies, certainly, fights, rapes, batteries. That's right. And they're collected, and someone at the office will review them from time to time. And is there some threshold level where someone has to make the determination that enough is enough? Well, it is, you know, taken on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, it used to be a disorderly house. I mean, you would have to stack up just, you know, lots and lots of things. And then over the years, when I worked at the Alcoholic Beverage Control, they started filing what we would call mini, mini disorderlies against a licensee, which would be uh, less violations than what we used to require to file an accusation against a license. So just depends on the type of violations that are happening and, and different things. It's, it's, there's really no hard and fast rule sure. on, on how many incidents require a disorderly house. Sure. Sizes uh, vary. Circumstances vary. 
But is there some formal hearing or some formal process where you cross that threshold and you're officially labeled a, quote, disorderly house? Uh, yes, you'll get you'll get a letter in the mail from oh. your local ABC office. Oh. Uh, you know, a matter concerning the operation of your business has come to our attention. You know, come come see us. So that's the kind of letter you don't want to get. Yeah, you get this nice little invitation letter. So you go in and talk to them, and they say uh, we've got all this uh, evidence, and uh, we're going to file an accusation against your license. Yikes. You know, what say you? <laughs> yeah. So so you better have. Uh, some good, uh, you really don't have an excuse. You really have to say, I've been a bad boy and I'll do better, I guess. Exactly, yeah. So they give you a choice of either admitting to it and taking your lumps or going to a hearing and, and fighting it. Okay, once they're officially labeled a disorderly house, could they cure that? Could they have that removed or is it with them forever? The formal disciplinary action taken by the ABC, the Alcoholic Beverage Control, is always on your record, basically. So it's kind of like your criminal record. Right. It if, follows if, you. If you had a, a conviction 10 years ago, you might get a little slack. But if you're having a conviction every year for 10 years, you're going to get very little slack. Right. Because you've had warning after warning after warning, and there's really no hope in sight that you're going to get your act together. So is that disorderly house at some point a threshold for... Uh, license suspension or revocation? It can be. You've got different uh, penalties for different violations that occur. There, you know, The alcoholic beverage control has a, a standard penalty schedule of what the standard penalty is, and it can be anything from a suspension to revocation or a fine in lieu of a suspension to revocation of your liquor license. Uh, disorderly house is considered one of the more serious infractions, uh, violations. So it, it could result in revocation, but uh, again, whether it does the first time on a first violation depends on the, the past record and that type of thing. So you're likely to get multiple chances. Yes. Okay. Now, I suppose to, to become or be designated a disorderly house, I would guess, I don't know, you tell me, most of that probably stems from issues of intoxicated persons. Absolutely. You're in the business of selling alcoholic beverages, intoxicating beverages, and your mismanagement of that has contributed to your place losing control. Is that a, about it? That's a fair statement. Okay. Well, what does it say uh, in California? I know that's where your expertise is. Uh, states may vary. Uh, different countries may have different uh, regulations. But in California, what's our law regarding serving intoxicated people or people we suspect might be intoxicated? The uh, Business and Professions Code, uh, Section 25602A, talks about uh, that it's against the law to sell, serve, give, furnish, you know, or cause to be sold or furnished or given any alcoholic beverage to a person who's obviously intoxicated. And that means the average person can plainly see that the person is drunk. The BAC level, the blood alcohol content, has nothing to do with obvious intoxication, and uh, the server is not re you know, required to know a person's BAC, but they are required to recognize what the average person can plainly see and not sell to that person. See, that's interesting. See, the servers of alcoholic beverages would like nothing better if... Once we cross that magic threshold where our blood alcohol level 
pushed us into intoxication that our forehead would light up somehow or yes. <laughs> or our nose would turn red or or something some objective sign uh, that we that we could tell right but that's not the case so the licensee has the obligation the law says they have the obligation not to serve this intoxicated person so what is a reasonable thing or reasonable steps that a licensee could take to uh, I guess to start off looking at some of the physical signs I think we've all seen a drunk person but um, you know you still need to be educated on these things sometimes and you know inhibitions are relaxed judgment is impaired coordination is affected you know the classic signs of intoxication according to back in the day when we would receive a lot of LAPD Los Angeles Police Department reports was red watery eyes slurred speech and staggered gait and an odor of alcoholic beverage on the person so those are kind of the classic uh, you know police descriptors but um, I see it in every police report I read when they have an intoxicated person it's like those are the sentences that make it into the report right to describe that uh, condition so the the seller of alcohol then needs to be aware of these things and needs to train their people to be aware of that and not to overserve or not to serve someone. Yeah, and don't serve them to the point where they get even to 0.08 in my opinion. You don't really know unless, you know, what their what your customer's BAC is unless you can, you count drinks and you use the uh, the BAC charts to estimate a person's body weight and how much alcohol that they can withstand before they become 0.08. I'm sure some of our listeners are not familiar with BAC. They're not familiar with 0.08 and legal intoxication in the state of California. So could you help us out and tell us what that means? What does 0.08 mean? What, what is BAC? Well, blood alcohol content is uh, the amount of uh, alcohol that's in your bloodstream. And it's measured by the use of the 0.08 means there's... Uh, what, uh, eight one thousandths of a drop of blood in your, or uh, alcohol in your bloodstream? It's some technical <laughs> thing. This is, not a, this is not a medical show, so I'll, give you, medical a, I'll show. give you a pass on Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> but someone else, some doctor or scientist somewhere, did these calculations. And for the state of California, we decided that the threshold level of, now is this called legal intoxication? Yes, this is known as legal intoxication because it's... Um, the point at which you are considered driving under the influence, driving while intoxicated. Now, does it only apply to driving the 0.08 standard? That's correct. So the way you express it is 0.08 BAC. So that means 0.08 blood alcohol content? Yes. Okay. And that just applies to driving? That's right. So if I'm walking, can I legally be above 0.08? Sure. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's no law against walking with that level of alcohol in your system. Now, if you're talking about minors, somebody under the uh, age of 21, there's, you know, they can't have any alcohol in their system whatsoever, so. And there's other laws on the books, aren't there? Uh, you can't be drunk in public. That's true. But that's, again, the, the signs and symptoms are what can get you arrested and not your, your BAC level. And being drunk in public, if you can't, you're, you're so intoxicated or impaired that you really can't take care of yourself. That's right. Or you're putting yourself or others at risk. Uh, there are other penal code sections Correct. in California and other states that will address that. That's right. 
But as far as the liquor licensee is concerned, his obligation is to not serve someone to the point where they're intoxicated or overly. What's the official term? Obvious? Well, it says you cannot serve an obviously intoxicated person. So what that means is once they look intoxicated, you can't serve them. And some people say, you know, they interpret that as meaning you can't serve a person to the point of intoxication. That That's something that's separate. That That's yeah. a different thing. Now, now when they, uh, the, the law enforcement arrests someone for being under the suspicion of being intoxicated, they could administer certain subjective and objective tests, right? Correct. They could do a blood test. They could do a breath alcohol test. They could do a field sobriety test uh, just for helping them make that determination. But does the liquor licensee have any legal responsibility or duty to perform some test like that? No. Um, well, <clears throat> their responsibility comes in as far as, you know, using their powers of observation, you know, not ignoring what is right in front of them, you know. So they have to be reasonable. Uh, reasonable is all that the law asks for, you know, do what a reasonable person would do under the same circumstances. And you can't be ignorant. You can't claim that I didn't know when there are training programs out there. There are courses that you could take, right? Correct, yeah. To help you know. So if you put an inexperienced bartender on duty who has no training and you haven't bothered to train that person, that's not an excuse. Right. That you didn't recognize a person. So that's always a question then to a server, to let's say a bar or a nightclub. Uh, what's their obligation to their patrons? Are they, are they required not to overserve them past 08 BAC? Let me give you a hypothetical. You're a bartender and you're thinking that a person maybe you've served them three or four or five drinks and, and maybe they're, they're getting too much. And you want, you want to slow them down a bit. And they say, hey, I'm not driving. I'm going to take a taxi home or this person next to me is my designated driver. And once they tell you that, does that give you the green light as a server to keep serving them? No, it does It does not. It doesn't matter if they're driving or walking or getting a ride. You know, you, you're not allowed to have anybody who's drunk in your premises, basically. And that's a whole separate thing. That's a penal code violation, to have someone who's drunk to the point of being unable to care for their own safety or somebody else's safety. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is um, to not serve someone who looks or acts drunk. So how do you do, how do you accomplish that? What are the recommended ways and what does the state of California recommend that establishments do to prevent patrons from reaching that level of intoxication? Well, I have a, a kind of a system that I've created and it's called the CARE system. And it's, it's an acronym. I love acronyms. Uh, C stands for counting drinks. A is being attentive, uh, R is rating your guests uh, according to the traffic light rating system, red, yellow, green, and then E stands for executing your duty. So we can go through those steps if you like. Let's do that. I, I'm getting old. I don't have the memory like I used to. <laughs> okay. The first one was counting drinks. That's the way I was taught when many, many decades ago when I was a bartender. How does that work? How does counting drinks allow you to keep patrons from getting intoxicated? It, it helps you keep track of the number of, of standard drinks, and we'll define that in a second, that your guest uh, has consumed. Um, a standard drink is considered uh, 12 ounces of beer, 
or five ounces of wine or an ounce and a half of 80 proof liquor. You need to know how many drinks, standard drinks people are drinking. And you can do that by tracking drinks either on a tab in front of the guest or some other method. Now, if you're in a small bar, that's doable. Right. You're the only bartender and you have a handful of customers. But what if you have 250 people in your establishment and the cocktail waitresses are pretty much taking the orders and serving the drinks and the bartenders really don't know where the drinks are destined? Well, the, you know, the ultimate server is responsible for, for serving. Uh, the bartender is mixing the drinks, and he's not the one that's going to get arrested if someone is served who shouldn't be served, unless he really knows about it, you know, and he's in cahoots with somebody else. But So it's the ultimate uh, server who needs to, you know, monitor how many drinks people are getting, you know, and however they do that, they need to do it. So and, that's, that's an important part then, I guess, of having a policy and having training about how they accomplish that, right? Right. And staffing levels are important too, you know. Sure. If you've got that many people, then you need more staff so you can, you know, monitor people. Sure. So I can tell that it's not easy. If you have a bunch of people at a table and you're ordering a whole armload full of drinks, uh, one person may drink his drink and someone else's drink. I mean, they could could really power them down. That's right. I suppose. Now, how are they supposed to determine uh, that someone hasn't just come from the bar next door? and walked into your place. Well, that gets into the next step in the care system, and that's being attentive. You have to be attentive from the time somebody walks in until they leave, and that means being observant and alert and watchful and, you know, talking to them when they they come to your uh, establishment. Find out their mood and, you know, ask them why they're there. Are they there to celebrate something? You know, the more you talk to people, the more you know their motivation and you know, if they're going to want to be drinking heavily that night and ask them, you know, where have you been somewhere else, you know, before you came here? They all just came in on a party bus or something. That might be a clue. Right. Let me step you back for a second about the drink counting thing. I think that's interesting. Aren't there some rules of thumb? And I don't know how firm these are, but there's some rules of thumb that managers and servers should be aware of about how many drinks get you near that threshold, that 0.08 or that level of intoxication threshold. Tell, tell, tell my listeners something about that. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that's all part of the county drinks because you, you count drinks and then, um, you have to use that in conjunction with the, the chart, the, uh, blood alcohol content chart. And I think most people have seen it. It's the, the chart that's put out by different, uh, agencies. The, uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has a version. Um, there's a lot of different versions out there, but essentially it tells you for men and women how many drinks it takes to get to a 0.08, uh, or thereabouts. Or thereabouts. For example, a 160 pound man, uh, takes three drinks, three standard drinks to get him to a 0.07 BAC. Over what period of time? In one hour. Okay, so three standard drinks in an hour will get you knocking on the door. That's oh. right. Okay. So these are the tools that, you know, that servers need to, to have available and learn how to use. So if a bar or a club is serving non-standard drinks, I mean, lots of places, we've all been in them where they're serving pints now or larger jugs of beer or wine or pitchers of beer serving doubles. Right, right. 
That gets you there quicker. Well, you take a, a cocktail, for example, um, made with vanilla vodka, chocolate liqueur, Irish cream liqueur. You know, you've got uh, three different uh, beverages in there. So you have to find out exactly how many standard drinks are in that particular cocktail. You know, it could be more than one standard drink. So it's important if you're in the business to know that, huh? To yes. find out. There's certainly resources and ways of knowing that. Right. There's a formula that, that you can use to determine that. And actually, that's the owner's responsibility to know how many standard drinks are on each, in each drink on the menu. And that should be shared with the employee so they know. And it's good to have controls, isn't it? Whether you're right. on a gun, which a lot of people hate, or whether you're doing regular shots, or you're doing heavy pours or long pours. Right. It could definitely uh, uh, make a difference. We're kind of getting into the area of science. Somebody figured all this stuff out about blood alcohol content and how many drinks you could ingest. But I suppose it makes a difference based on a lot of things, whether you're how big you are, whether you weigh. What else makes a difference? Oh, gosh, there are so many factors that affect uh, intoxication. And if you're going to be showing the effects or not, including, like you said, size. If you had food, I suppose. Oh, yeah, eating food, um, whether you're on medications or taking other drugs, whether you're a female or a male. Females get intoxicated quicker than males. You know, these are all things that we teach in this responsible serving class. So it's many things. So it's, I guess it helps if you have a, a club or a bar that you serve food, maybe. Absolutely. And it might be nice if you had alternative beverages. Yes. Where instead of a drink, maybe offer them a water or a soda or a juice. Maybe slow someone down a little bit. Exactly. But it's all doable. You just have to have a plan. That sounds like the, the point, right? Exactly, yeah. Now, let's say I'm running a bar and I have people over in the corner sitting at the table, and I could tell from across the room that they're intoxicated. Is it enough for me just to cut them off and allow them to stay, someone who's obviously intoxicated? No. I mean, you have to act reasonably and take care of that person. Find them a safe ride home, number one. And while they're waiting for a ride, make sure that they're not wandering around getting more alcohol from somewhere else. And, uh, you know, offer them a non-alcoholic beverage or something other than very hot coffee that you know, they're going to burn themselves on. Yeah, you can't just cut them off and either send them out the door packing or or ignore them. You have to take care of them. Yeah, and the same thing would go, obviously, if you found someone passed out in one of your restrooms or... Absolutely, yeah. Head down, sleeping, passed out on your bar. Yeah. You can't just ignore that. No, you have a duty. You have a duty to do something affirmative. That's right. Now... This is maybe out of your jurisdiction. What about the obviously intoxicated person? You, you run a good club, you've tried to do everything right, but some guy is just completely snockered. You really can't put your finger on how he got there, but he is dead drunk and shouldn't be driving. And you said goodnight, you know he's going home, he's got his keys in his hands. Do you have any obligation under the law, if you know, to do something to prevent him from driving? You do have a, a duty. Uh, it's a moral duty uh, to prevent him from driving and do what you can, you know, within a reason to get those keys away, find, a, find him a safe ride home. And if all else fails, you call the police and report, you know, a drunk driver. I mean, on the one hand, that's your customer. You want to take care of him. Right. You want him to come back again, drink some more. 
on another day. So you want them to survive the night and and from a liability standpoint, you certainly don't want to send a drunk out there on the road. Absolutely. So, or knowingly doing that. Okay, I got it. Is a server liable, at least in the state of California, for knowing someone's blood alcohol content? No, no, they're they're liable for you know not serving an obviously intoxicated person. If you know, if you, if you're a if, <laughs> I see this all the time. If you're a server and you're keeping a tab, and on that tab clearly shows, because you have the login time, right? Right. How many drinks you serve that person. It's objective evidence that you've served this person way too much. Correct. Sounds like you're on the hook for that. You, yeah. There's no, there's no getting around that. And there's no, there's no argument that'll, that'll stand up under the law to say, well, the customer is responsible for their own behavior. I didn't make you drink that. When it comes to licensed establishments, uh, you're basically your brother's keeper. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That goes with the territory. Yes. You take on those duties when you want to become a licensee. That's right. You're going to play by our rules, by the rules of the state. or Right. Okay. So tell me about back, and this will take you back in the day where you're a liquor control agent and you work with law enforcement on a regular basis. What are some of the things that you did or the agencies you work with did to investigate issues of, of, uh, of establishment over-serving or having intoxicated persons? We, first of all, went where the complaints were. Um, the alcoholic beverage control uh, does not generally just stop in places because uh, they have to work the places that they're getting complaints. But in some cases, for example, on holidays and, st and stuff like that, we would do task forces and just kind of hit all the bars in a city or something, whether it be a Palm Springs break task force, you know, when all the kids would go to Palm Springs, you know, during spring break, or we had a Super Bowl task force one year, and that was down in San Diego, I think it was 1988 or 89, and I was working that particular task force. So I was in a bar that was pretty rowdy. It was Super Bowl, and, you know, we observed someone who was obviously intoxicated, sitting at the bar. So what I did as an undercover investigator was just go up to the bar, sit there, order a drink, um, you know, observe his symptoms, of course, and then engage the bartender in a conversation about the guy sitting next to me. And that was great evidence because that, you have to tie in the knowledge of the bartender or the server to the symptoms of the person who's drunk. Were you able to drink on duty? Oh, yeah. Wow, what a yeah. good job. Isn't that a great job? Great job. <laughs> so anyway, he, he ended up, the bartender ended up getting arrested. and um, So that's, that's one of the techniques. for. So, so it sounds like the message, message is that it's complaint-driven. And if you're a liquor license establishment, you don't want to be on the naughty list, right? You sure don't. You don't want to be the subject of constant complaints or police calls or violence. Or you get on that short list where they start getting a lot of attention paid to them. That's that right. right? Yep, you bet. So, and you better have your act together. You better have a plan. And you better be prepared. If you want to defend yourself from these accusations, it sounds like you need to have evidence that you have some policies designed to prevent people from being overserved, that you have a, a, a written training program to establish that you're trying to be a good uh, server and uh, hopefully evidence that they've attended uh, training classes. 
if you have any hopes of uh, defending yourself. So, so that's great. Before we wrap up here, where can a liquor licensee go to get more information? Do you have any recommended resources? They want to get technical information or pointers to, about the, the law or the, uh, the available education? Well, there's uh, different resources out there. Um, some of the good ones that have to do with intoxication are um, the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and uh, that's good for alcohol and health information. And their website is niaa.nih.gov. And then also, if you want uh, like research studies on intoxication issues, maybe you're a student or somebody who is trying to put together a program, you would want to check out uh, two different sites. One is uh, the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation, and that website is pire.org. And then there's another one uh, that's really excellent as well. Dr. Tracy Toomey does a lot of studies on alcohol-related issues, and she's with the University of Minnesota. And her website is aep.umn.edu. That stands for the Alcohol Epidemiology Program at the University of Minnesota. Great stuff. Obviously, it's a radio show, so you, you, you can't write these things down if you're driving in your car or you're out for a run. I'll make sure all these links end up on the website in the show notes so you can easily find them. We've been speaking with Lauren Tyson. She's the CEO and founder of Liquor License Advisor, based out of Riverside, California. She's got a book in the works. She's got an online training program in the works that hopefully will be available soon and will be an invaluable resource. So we appreciate you listening. We appreciate your comments and feedback on this show. And Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. For participating. You're a star. I hope we could do it again sometime. Me too. Thanks. Take care. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crime School. Crime School's subject matter is influenced by community feedback, so I appreciate any ideas for future discussion. I'm always looking for a guest, someone who has a particular crime or loss prevention expertise, or has a maybe a new product to review. I like to hear from crime victims that have a motivating story or outcome to share. Now, I must admit, I'm not active on social media. What can I say? I'm old. But I appreciate those who are active that share these crime school episodes with others so they could benefit from the information. Those that have iTunes account can help us grow as well by leaving us a five-star rating and review so others will come and enjoy the information. Thank you for participating in Crime School and for doing your part in making places safe. This is the Crime School Radio Show with your host, Chris McGoey. We invite you to comment on today's topic and join the Crime School community. For more information and show notes from this episode, please visit crimeschool.com.